Welcome to Notorious Women Podcast. I'm Lavetta. I'm Miriam. And this is Notorious Women. We are Notorious Women. Yes, a we comedy are. podcast about some of history's most notorious women. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Hi. How you doing Hi. today? I'm good. good. Yeah, I'm good. How about you? I'm good. You know, you just have to... I, I had to say this. There's a spider I found yesterday or oh and i i took the swiffer to kill it i hate spiders like a lot of people took the swiffer to kill it but it got away from me so now i'm on edge because i'm like where the fuck is it (laughs) so i've been thinking about it so it sounds to me like you're living in the spider's house like (laughs) this is not your house you are paying an enormous amount of rent to live in the spider's house this is why you need a cat because a cat will find yeah. it and then bring it to me, kill it, and then bring it to me. Like, here you go, mommy. <laughs> Listen, I will tell you this. Having children does the same thing. <laughs> Only it's much more expensive. Yes. But at this point, I see a spike. Go get it, baby. Go get oh, it. Man. Mommy's That's sitting right. on the couch now. Can't move. So. I'm one of those kids. My luck, I have a kid that likes bugs. I'd be like, hmm. No, I, I did have I did have that phase and we had to be like, we sent it to a better place and yeah. we're so sad that it cannot continue living in this house with us. Goodbye. Uh, like, oh, like hamsters. And yeah, that's true. Like those things I mean, that die no, easily. No, 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 no. The, the child liked the ants. The child liked the bugs and was like, Ooh, you're not killing no. the ant, are you? And you're like... No, <laughs> it's going to Aunt Heaven. It's going to Aunt with the Heaven. other ants. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. Well, well, I am, but I'm hanging in there, and you know, yeah. excited to be here for another episode. Should we get started? Let's get started. All right. I believe this week you are first, my dear. So, it's me. Yeah. I went first last week. What do you have for me? Who's your uh, notorious <laughs> woman this my, week? My notorious woman is someone I had never heard of. Until I started, I started looking for, I was wondering, here, I'll tell you who it is. And then you'll see where I go. Are you, I feel we'll like. We'll start with her and then we'll go on the journey with me. Okay. 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 Mamie Smith. Have you heard Mamie of Mamie Smith? Smith? Sounds very familiar. It just sounds like a very familiar Southern name. I can't even lie. Mamie Smith. Right. But so it turns out she's someone we should have known about. Okay. Okay. So she was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in, well, in in 1891, but everywhere in the world, the year of her birth had been given 1883, but in 2018, they discovered her birth certificate. She was actually born in 1891. She was an American vaudeville singer, dancer, pianist, and actress. Oh, uh, she uh, was born in, um, well, bleh. so her mother was from Kentucky. Amanda Havey was her mother. Her father was Benjamin Robinson. Um, and he was a porter and he was from Canada. So they lived in Cincinnati, born on 14 Perry Street, uh, 
And there are two separate birth records with the same birth date, the same parents, the same address, and the same midwife. Um, and they think that her name was actually Mary R. So she was 10 years old when she started working for Vaudeville. Okay. Oh, well, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but why were yeah, there two birth certificates? I have no idea. Uh, yeah. And I'm not records, sure. Probably. Yeah. And she's black and... And Mamie Smith or Mary Smith is not an uncommon name? No, but same parents. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. You did so, say that. That's weird. Which is, I find it odd. I also find it odd that for, I mean, honestly, like there's, um, oh God, I like I got information from a place called um, Friends of the Music Hall. Is that what it's called? Okay. Uh, it's like friendsofmusichall.org. Everywhere else, they said 1883. So, I don't know. I, the records were messy. So, when she was 10, she found work touring with a white act called the Four Dancing Mitchells. Um, and as a teenager, she danced in Salem Tut Whitney's Smart Set. So, the Smart Set Company was a prominent black vaudeville uh, company they were producers, they were the writers, they were the performers. At the time of vaudeville, fun fact, working for white people when you were black was not all that great. I <laughs> no. know. Yeah. No, I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I, I tell you. I know. Nobody knew not this until now. So <laughs> here you go. Information for you. Write it down. Okay. Um. And so, but what they did was they started, they, there, there was a lot of them, a lot of companies that said, okay, fine, we'll tour on our own. We will run it. It'll be our thing. And vaudeville was actually very conducive to that because yeah. um, it was your own thing and you could join yeah. another group of people or you could have your own tours. And yeah. it was very popular. Uh, when she was in the smart set company at age 16, she met and married fellow performer, Sam P. Gardner. Um, it is amazing. She is touring at 10. I have no idea where her parents are. Um, um, I mean, kids have to fend for themselves, especially if you're black and poor. And back in the day, and she's clearly very talented. Yeah. So, like, you know, goff you go, you know. She could have been traveling with a, um, like a family friend, a play cousin, as we would say, who might be yeah. part, who also a performer. Because I think people don't realize that, you know, black and, and Jewish people got yeah. into uh, performance because it's one of the few ways you can make a living without having to be a servant or be, yeah. you know, subject to prejudice. In those to, days, that's how yeah. a lot of black and a lot of Jewish people got out of the slums, yeah. right? Yeah. Of, of bad situation. Exactly. Um, and so, I mean, she, she did what she had to do. She, and for all accounts, she was fine, you know. I wonder um, what her her act was at ten. Uh, that's what I wonder too. Like she was ten, and like a little black girl working touring with a white act. What? Ooh, I bet they put her in blackface. I, I, yeah. I'm nervous. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she probably was in blackface, which was the norm. I know it's hard for us to believe in our modern. Uh, society, but even black performers were forced, if they wanted to eat, they wanted to work, yeah. were forced to do blackface uh, yeah. during that time. But, but you know, they it's it's more legitimate work, even though performers were considered kind of like 
the dregs of society, but still like for them, like it's like having your own business, right? Like, yes. you know, I heard yes. this podcast, uh, another podcast, and they were saying how uh, these black women after the Civil War, they were um, washerwomen, which is a very brutal job. But many of them preferred it to working in white homes because they were businesswomen. They had their yes. own businesses and could set their own, you know, schedules. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And well, in in entertainment, there's that possibility yep. of going above and beyond. Yep. And really making a living. Yeah. You know, but the and idea you were getting paid like, more as a performer than you would be as a maid or a washerwoman. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, it's just lot. keeping the as we know, as uh, actors, trained actors, it's a matter of having steady work. Yeah. When you're getting paid, it's good. <laughs> but if you're and not you, getting paid a lot, that's why you go on tour. So that's why you go. I've been on tour. Yeah. Do you know, that's why I, play I play Tiny Tim. Tiny. <laughs> don't I look like a little boy, Lavetta? <laughs> I don't know what's funny have, right now. Because Samosa. And <laughs> Oliver. Hello. Oh, that's right, Oliver. That's right. Tiny Tim. I have played so many little boys. It's in all my Dickens. Career. Okay. <laughs> so much. What Dickens. did I say about your self esteem when you're I, young? You know what? Actress. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Hello, governor. You know, that's my bad I, British accent. That was really Hello. terrible. But Hello, I really enjoyed governor. it at the same time. <laughs> Where people were like, oh, you have a great British accent. I'm like, Hello. Hmm. Can I have some so, more? So did someone tell you you had a great British accent? I'm just Hey, asking. hey, hey. We won't get personal, right? No, just, now it's been like, what's up, brof? 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 Oh, oh. <laughs> hey, brof. That's you. You really. That's the modern been... equivalent of hello. <laughs> oh, brof. <laughs> no, Do you want the smoke, brof? <laughs> like what? <laughs> I don't know what you're saying, British but I can people... listen to you all day. <laughs> Please don't hate us, British people. We love you. Please we love, love us. your accents. We yes. do, and we're clearly jealous of it because we can't. We're making do fun because it. it's yes. because ours is terrible. So I'm yeah, sorry. You, I digress. Can... Go ahead. No, no worries. You could. They could clearly get us back. Our, yeah. our but I was oh no they do get us back with these yeah. terrible you know how I feel about bad uh, southern accents like yes. I'm like why do you somebody have you seen the glass onion I have seen the glass onion <laughs> someone was saying uh what's his name um Daniel Craig's uh oh, even the yeah. name is it, it, it's, it's a mystery comedy so that's why I forgive the accent but he's like Benoit Blanc and he's like doing a uh uh <laughs> he's doing a uh, yeah <laughs> what's it Fog, foghorn leghorn i say i say boy i say i say boy listen to me when i'm talking to you like that is not a real southern accent people you sound listen, like the colonel he's <laughs> I'll like say, i'll say it's like benoit blanc though like that's it's not like an I mean, accent from name, anywhere but benoit land that's... i know his name is benoit blanc i'm like people simmer down even i know it's a joke it's funny it's supposed to be funny that's why he's doing that accent yeah <laughs> I liked that movie. I did too. I like it. And I enjoy uh, Daniel Craig. I enjoy all the movies. I'm a big mystery oh, yeah. person. so. But it wasn't a history in how people speak no. in the South of America. Um, yeah. This America. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> fuck her and like her. Okay. So she got married at 16. She divorced in 1912. 
um, and then traveled with a smart set to New York to perform at the Lafayette Theater. So when they got to New York, she decided to stay there. She honed her skills in cabarets, uh, dozens of popular Harlem clubs. This was Harlem. I feel like this was the ascent of Harlem being, being the place of, of, of culture and art. Yeah, Cause and it started music. in like 1915, 1916 is when yeah, it's like it was starting 1912 actually, but it really swung into like, it exploded. Like, I mean, it was exploded yeah. in the twenties. Yeah. Um, so in 1913, she left the Tut brothers to sing in clubs in Harlem and then married William Smitty Smith, who was a singer. And that's where she got her last name. Now, she married two more times in her life, but she liked hey. Smith, so she kept it. Um, All right, Mamie, that's what I'm talking about, girl. You know, yeah, she yeah. did what she had to do. Mm-hmm. That's what she got to do. Um, in the summer of 1918, Mamie was hired by Perry Bradford, who was an actor, dancer, pianist, singer, and songwriter, to perform his compositions in the Harlem Lincoln Theater Review, Made in Harlem. Now, her rendition of his song Harlem Blues was the hit of the show and he reworked it as Crazy Blues. So knowing that he had a hit on his hands, Bradford convinced Frederick Hager, the white director of artists and repertoire, A&R, at OK Records, to take a risk on an African-American singer. I know, right? Um, There was... I mean, obvious racist pushback. Um, And he agreed to record his songs, but first he asked a white vaudeville singer, Sophie Tucker, who I've heard of. Um, But she couldn't because she was under contract with Vocalion and she couldn't record for OK. So between 1915 and 1917, there were only four vocal recordings with blues in the title. So there was Memphis Blues, Morton Harvey, Homesickness Blues, Nora Bays, Paradise Blues, Marion Harris, and Dallas Blues, Marie Cahill. Now, you might not know this from their names, but they were all white people. So, um, yeah, that's fine. It's not, though. Um, they were great, but they, quote, weren't as soulful as Mamie. Because they were white uh, people. I wonder why. Because <laughs> they and were just white so people, people. Don't, people don't realize that... It wasn't that there weren't blues singers, black because blues comes from black people. It's that yeah. they were not being recorded. They weren't being recorded. Exactly. They weren't being recorded. Uh, and so it's kind of like if you've seen um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that's her whole thing is like they're going to record our voices and then push us out. And that's what that is. So and that's what they did. And that's what happened. Yeah. Um. So on February 14th, 1920, she recorded Bradford's, so this was a couple of years later, right? Uh, That thing called Love and You Can't Keep a Good Man Down with the all-white house orchestra led by Fred Hager under the pseudonym Milo Rega. So this was the first recording by a black blues singer, which is kind of epic. Uh, The backing musicians were, however, were still all white because, you know... um, And Hager received threats from northern and southern pressure groups saying they would boycott the company if he recorded a black singer. But he did it anyways, and it was a commercial success. So this opened the door to record more black singers. 
They're like, ooh, we can make money from the darkies. <laughs> yep. Yep, Cause, yep, yep. Because their music, uh, funny thing, they sound better singing their own music than the white people do. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? I mean, <laughs> I never thought. <laughs> I'm being very sarcastic. You cannot tell. Um, it's like with gay marriage. I was like, you guys, how much money are they going to put into a wedding? To put put your prejudice aside and make that money. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, capitalism. <laughs> capitalism. Yeah. But they always find a way to still distinguish it. You're probably going to yeah. get to it. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah. There's, always, there, there's always a way, Lavetta. There's yeah, it's always a way. Um, so the first record was marginally successful, as they said. So it was successful, but it wasn't like crazy. Gangbusters, yeah. Right. So six months later, on August 10th, 1920, her recording Crazy Blues uh, with her hand-picked all-black jazz hounds was a runaway success. Hmm, I wonder why. Can you figure out? <laughs> Can you put two and two together to make four? I don't know. I don't know. Damn, yeah, these darkies can play. They can really play their own music. <laughs> I keep using that term. But you know that's what they were saying. It's something worse. Lovetta, you can say whatever you want, but I would never. <laughs> I tell you. It's insane. Um, Racism is insane. No, it is insane. It's so stupid. It's like, well, she was black, but everyone behind her is white, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, then she yeah. picks her own band, which makes sense in general. Uh -huh. Like, oh my word, it sounds better. No, this duh. Really? Well, yeah. fuck me. <laughs> All right. So a million copies were sold in less than a year. Oof. Uh, many were bought by African-Americans. There was a sharp rise in sales of, quote, race records. Remember this? See, ah, there's, mm. there it is. Mm. Remember I said they'll figure out a way to make the distinction. Yep. I yeah. told you. I mean, you obviously yeah. knew. Um, but, yep. They're like, that's fine. These are race records, which are different. Yeah. Cool. Which are different. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, white people have such little self-esteem. <laughs> it's so sad, really. Like, oh, honey, it's okay. Exhausting. Someone else can be better at you than something. And that or not even let's not even get into that. Like, just enjoy it. Yeah. Like, just enjoy it. You like, like it. Yeah. Like. I just mean, enjoy it. Like, you know. except that they're allowed to be waiters now. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have heard bad things from very old people back in the day, but I won't get into that. Yes. Do you know they're allowed to be waiters? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> they they even right. let him go to school now. What is... It's just unbelievable. Do you know every college lets them in? Okay. <laughs> For now. <laughs> I mean, you know that's how the Jews got into colleges, right? It's how? the mafia, the Jewish mafia. I'm not mad at it. I'm not I'm, mad at the mafia yeah. in general, even though Italian people tend to hate black people. But that's a whole different story. But I, I understand why the mafia needed to happen. I don't agree with oh, the... Yeah. the Yeah, like I don't like the people... Brothels you know. and the, the murder and the... <laughs> Yeah, but like I, I don't it. like that part of it, but yeah. you know, that's how we got into college. I like I didn't know that till I was like thirty. 
Okay. I did, yeah. Can you tell our audience exactly what you're referring so to? So I read a book, and if anyone knows more about this, please tell me. But basically, around the time of the Italian mafia doing what it was doing, aka like the Godfather stuff, I don't know the, the famous ones, right? I don't know that much, obviously, but there were Jewish. Yeah, those guys. Those guys. Um, there were Jewish mafias too. They actually worked side by side to some degree too. And it was, I mean, for the same reasons, you know, nobody, they, they needed to take care of their own. And one of the things that the Jewish mafia like targeted were universities and said, we need to let our children go to universities. And so you, you know, like you, you think of, you know, the educated Jewish, like stereotypical, you will go to college. I, it kind of stems from that. Like they, yeah. There were, it was all white people. And then suddenly we could be let in. So, you yeah. know. It's kind of like how um, I always think of of uh, the Kennedys, like Joe Kennedy, the, the patriarch made his money off of bootlegging. Yeah. You know, people don't realize yeah. that. And then he was like, oh, because the Kennedys consider it like yeah. blue bloods, right? But oh, it's like, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. No. Mm, <laughs> but it's like, mm-mm. but he's like, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna do this dirty work, but I'm gonna make money, and then I use that money to to yep. uh, invest in legitimate things, and then my son becomes president. These it's are Irish people, right? Like Irish American. I people, mean, that's so. the thing is, like, I don't even knock it, right? It's not yeah, like, oh no, I not think at all. Much I, I, the Jews should like honor it. Like, yeah. we had to do what we had to do, and the it was. I think the narrative is that, oh, well, Jews are really smart. And that's what happened. No, they're not smarter than anybody else. Well, you know what I mean? Like you have to demand your way in. It's like and like even in uh, like bootlegging. And I know about that in the black community, because it's like if you cut off avenues to success for people, they're going to figure out a way one way or another. Right. Yeah, they are. They are. They're going to figure out a way. That's oh, human nature. It's like, just and for a lot nature. of, and for a lot of black people, they'll be like, "Black people are naturally musical," and it's like, "No, that's one of the few areas, like you're saying, Mamie Smith, where they yeah. can make progress." Yep. Because <laughs> the white people are like, "Oh, they're, they're musical," and it's like, "Well, first of all, it's a, it's a, it's an art form that came out of that, you know, that difficulty." But then it's like it's one of the few ways that they can make it. Like we were saying with Mamie and other black women, like. You go on the road, you can make way more money than what you were relegated to being a washerwoman right. or a maid, which, yep. you know, was hard work and paid a lot less and was a lot less glamorous. There's also the glamour element. To I mean, it too. yeah. And also we want what we want. Like yeah. you and I know the feeling of wanting to perform. Yeah. Like, you want to entertain. Yeah. Yeah. And so this yeah. was an avenue that was like possible. Yep. Okay. Like not everything But even in that, even in that, like. They're like, oh, we'll let them do music. We'll record them, but it's race records. It's race records. Ugh. <laughs> oh, God. Guys. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Okay. So Perry Bradford, I was like, where am I? Uh, became her manager. He organized tours for her and scheduled future recording sessions. He started his own publishing and music management business, and he made a small fortune off of her. Uh, yeah, I bet. Um, so African-Americans had been, I'm saying African-Americans because that's what Wikipedia says. Um, also the Friends of Music Hall, but. Did, okay. Yeah. Um, they'd been, there were recordings earlier, but 
uh, George W. Johnson in the 1890s, but they were performing musical music that had a substantial following among European American audiences. So they weren't recording their oh, own. Oh yeah, music. gotcha. Okay, um, gotcha. So they did. Yeah, allow... I was going to say, I think there was an earlier recording. Yes. But yes. That distinction is different. Okay. But like black American music that came from black America. Black American people. Yeah. Like. I mean, that I think that's huge because that's yeah. honoring like the blues and jazz, mm-hmm. which turns into jazz and then yeah. turns into popular music or even uh, ragtime. I love ragtime. Yep. I mean, I also love the musical ragtime. Yes. Da, 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 da. Okay. <laughs> I know a lot of people are like, yeah, but it's important to know where stuff comes from. It is important to know where stuff comes from. Yeah. Um, so. The Crazy Blues was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame because of its historical significance in 1994. 1994. When did when when was it recorded again? Okay, it was mm, 1920, August wow. 10th, 1920. Four years. Seventy four okay. years. Could my eye roll get bigger? I don't think wow. so. Um. And it was selected per, for preservation in the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress in 2005. Hmm. Progress. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. Getting Miriam, it together. Yeah. Can you sing it? What? What ragtime song would you like me to sing? I'm ready. No, I'm talking about uh, Mamie's song. What is it called again? Girl, I can't sing. Crazy Blues. Crazy Blues. Crazy Blues. Crazy Blues. Crazy Blues. I'm crazy about that man. No, that's that's country. (laughs) That's very country. (laughs) But it was a really good attempt and you tried so hard. And for that, I give you so much credit. We're sorry, Miss Mamie Smith. We're sorry. Um, you can listen to some of her recordings online. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Go, go. She's amazing. Like, oh, surprise, yeah. obviously. But it's cool because it's like that same, you see the spark. Yeah. Like, it still translates and there's such old recordings, but it's yeah. it's cool. Um, cool. So she continued to make popular recordings for OK through the 1920s. Uh, in 1924, she made three releases for Ajax Records which was heavily promoted, but it didn't sell as well. Um, she also made some records for Victor. So do you remember like the Victor mm-hmm. talking machine company? This mm-hmm. takes me back to singing in the rain, which mm-hmm. I love that movie. Totally not related to anything we're talking about. So thank you for listening. Um, and they um, made phonographs and they made recordings. Um, yeah, so I would she, imagine also with the explosion of that success of that, then that opens the door for where they go out and they start looking for people like Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then, yeah, which it, she, it then becomes popularized. Right. Like, so maybe I mean, like the spark. I really always. Exactly. I always thought of Bessie Smith as the, the one who opened up the floodgates. But this actually she came before Bessie. Yeah. Um, and they were sort of contemporaries. So she, so Mamie toured uh, the U.S. and Europe with her, like Mamie Smith and her jazz hounds. So it was her Aww. people that she picked. 
uh, as part of Mamie Smith's Strutting Along review. She was billed as the Queen of the Blues, which was soon one-upped by Bessie Smith, who was called the Empress of the Blues. But I wonder, though, if... Because in especially in black musical circles, it's Ma Rainey is the queen of the blues, actually. And I wonder if Mamie, Mamie just got recorded first because Ma was older and had been traveling Uh, around. Because, you know, Ma Rainey made a lot of money traveling around on her her train. Yes. So touring. I saw and, the movie. <laughs> and in the movie, she's reluctant to record. So I wonder what forced her to record was the success of, it certainly was the success of Bessie, who by all accounts was her prodigy. But like if Mamie beats her to the punch and I wonder I mean, I th- if Ma think, is like, yeah. I think Mamie is just a, li- a few years earlier. She's just breaking. Of recording, up. but probably recording. Well, definitely not yeah. a performing. Yeah. Um, and she, Mamie was in the time and play, met the guy who said, no, you, this song. Yeah, now, exactly. You know? Exactly. So sometimes it's just, you know, time and place, man. Yeah. Okay. So she realized that radio provided a great means of gaining additional fans. So she performed uh, on KGW in Portland, Oregon in early May 1923 and received positive reviews. Through this touring, she became very wealthy. She was one of the very few successful black performers that made this level of money. Yeah. Oh, good for her. I know, right? Uh, Was she made a thousand dollars, which is thirteen thousand dollars today for weekly performances? Wow. Um, between 1920 and 1931, she earned an estimated $100,000. That's $1.3 in today's money. Uh, yes. In royalties from the 95 songs recorded. Um, her dresses, she was very big into fashion. Of they course. were from New York and Paris. And they received, this says, as much attention as her singing. Um Fashion designer Madame Hammer created Mamie Smith's stage gowns specifically, quote, fitting the individuality of the star and the various songs which she sings on her program. The Dayton Daily News said the audience hoped to see her dresses in a concert there at Memorial Hall, uh, including her favorite made of white silk trimmed with silver and American beauty roses with an ostrich feather headdress and fan to match. Sounds amazing. Yeah. I, would I also, that. now that you're saying that, I wonder if she physically um, is more appealing than Ma Rainey. Because like I said to black people, Ma Rainey is the queen of the blues. Yeah. Like, so Mamie is more aesthetically like pleasing and accepted, accepting and able to be accepted by mixed audiences and white audiences. And then also Bessie, because Bessie's younger than, yeah, uh, yeah. that that explains it's, a lot. But good a for her. Yeah, like, and she knew it. And also, like, this was her, I think she was a performer on every level, right? She wanted yeah. to show, you know, she loved the costumes. She loved the singing. You could you can see her. Everyone go watch the video. She's just got, she's she's she embodies it. Um, there's a quote from her. She says, I feel my audiences want to see me becomingly gowned and I have spared no expense or pains in frequenting the shops of the most fashionable modistes in America with a results that I believe my audience will like. 
as much as I do, for I feel that the best is none too good for the public that pays to hear a singer. I mean, I feel the same way. Yeah, right? like give the them a show. The people that I see should see me dressed accordingly, and so I should buy nice clothes. That feels right. Yeah, feel like, right? and also, oh, I see, yeah. I just want to go shopping. She's glamorous <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Um. So this is yeah. fun. This is just like a fun fact. So in 1923, an article in the Pittsburgh Courier a reporter got backstage to talk to her and asked her how she spent her leisure hours. She, quote, declared she enjoyed the quiet of her New York home and was very fond of fiction. But her husband and manager, Ossie Wilson, now she's married to a man named Ossie Wilson, chimed in laughing and said, the thing she likes to do above everything else in the world is to drive that Lincoln machine of hers. And really, I have never seen a more skillful woman driver. She has been driving three years and has only had one accident. And that occurred when she ran the car into me one day. I'm still wondering, though, if that really was an accident. <laughs> Just to be clear, that was not her last husband. That was oh, her third to last husband. Okay. Okay, Mamie. Yeah. My kind of lady. I should say second to last. <laughs> Anyways. Also, what a good driver for a woman. That's nice. <laughs> that's what I heard in that. No wonder. Mm -hmm. That's why he's her uh, ex-husband. He becomes her ex-husband. It probably wasn't an accident, Aussie. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay. So she, so she died in New York in 1946, reportedly penniless. Um. Because she lost, so this is what it says. She lost almost everything in the crash of 1929. So there's a, an article in the Chicago Defender that says she lived off charity of friends until her death. Um, well, she, it says she was penniless, but she was also married to Jack Goldberg. So she found a Jew um, <laughs> in 1929. <laughs> And appeared in uh, an early sound film, Jailhouse Blues, in that same year. She retired from recording and performing in 1931, but then returned to performing in 1939 to appear in the motion picture Paradise in Harlem, which was produced by her husband, Jack Goldberg. She also appeared in other films, including Mystery and in Swing in 1940, Sunday Sinners, 1940 also, um, Stolen Paradise, 41, Murder, Murder on Lenox Avenue, 1941, and Because I Love You, 1943. So I'm a little, like, penniless, but she's making all these movies. Yeah, and also, I wonder, because, you know, as a performer, which we've learned with the pandemic, mm. if you have a job or a business that depend that's dependent on in-person. Yes. And then, like, the crash. So let's say the crash happens, right? Almost everybody loses their money. So yeah. people don't have money to pay you to perform. So then let's say a couple of years after that. And then I'm wondering if a lot of black, early black performers didn't own their publishing. See, that's that's what I what I'm wondering also is what happened between those uh, years, yeah. 1931 and 1939. How was she living? Because well, you know, she probably wasn't depression. able to make the same amount of money from from touring because you know even today artists singers make their money mostly from touring yes. um but like you're right the penniless part still doesn't make sense because i would imagine that she certainly doesn't have as much money as she once had before the crash but then if she's also married 
And her husband sounds like he was a man of business. And like, yes, he was producing all these movies. Now, I understand yeah. that back then movies didn't make yeah. necessarily the level. Doesn't, but Penniless, penniless doesn't, sound right. doesn't sound right. Yeah. Sounds like she had a couple anything. rough years. Yeah, yeah, like everyone yeah. else and after she, the crash, she, and then it's probably not penniless, but she's probably no longer a millionaire yeah, or a hundred thousand yeah. air, which today's or you know in furs and stuff. So, right, right, normal clothing. Yeah. Um, but also too, they might not have paid her what she was worth during. Yeah, she probably. Yeah. I wonder if uh, she probably wasn't getting paid the publishing like she was supposed to. No. Like yeah. that's like yeah, I mean we still that's see still those a problem. Lawsuits. Yes, oh my that's god, that's like a problem in two thousand twenty three. Like yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, so she was interred at Frederick Douglass Memorial Park on Staten Island, which a ground it remained unmarked until two thousand thirteen. A oh, monument wow. was finally erected. Um. They, uh, there was a campaign. That's the word I'm looking for to <laughs> erect a headstone for her. It was begun in 2012, uh, by Michael and Anne Fanciulu Kala. Um, the couple, which was a blues journalist and editor, developed a months long crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. We all know Indiegogo. Remember Indiegogo? Yeah. Yeah. To purchase her headstone. Um, and the phil the philanthropy music cares also supported the effort. They raised over $8,000 and that funded the creation of a four foot high etched granite headstone featuring an image of the late blues singer. A monument was erected with great fanfare at Frederick Douglass Cemetery in Staten Island, New York on September 20th, 2013. Excess funds from the campaign were donated to the cemetery for grounds care. So maybe Smith they say of her, she defined classic blues. Her success inspired and empowered generations of performers and helped establish the preeminence of black traditions in popular culture. She and her manager, Perry Bradford, pioneered the first recordings, designed, advertised, and sold to black communities. And that's what created the race, the quote unquote race records, which oh, I yeah. suppose was like better than nothing, right? Like, yeah, that it was. A huge I mean, it created death. opportunities for black performers who could. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, um, um like uh, stage performers who get into Hollywood pictures. Like the by the time they make it to Hollywood pictures, they're like it's old hat, but they get to make a lot more money than yes. they were. On the exactly, stage. <laughs> exactly. But that, like, so. that, I the, I was actually looking at at the, I was like, oh, Bessie Smith. Like yeah, uh, uh, Ma Rainey, and then I was like, yeah. "Oh, I don't even know her." Yeah, I've, she, I've heard of her. I'm Mamie Smith sounds very familiar, but I didn't know that in reference to who we do know, Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. And right. Like, yeah, and okay, so and also because Ma Rainey, her her um, profile was raised again in the in the 80s with the the play, the play Ma Rainey because Slug yeah. Yeah, so she, you know, and then uh, Bessie Smith, because Bessie Smith was a character I feel like a lot of white historians really love. So that's why a lot yeah. of us know about Bessie. And so, because yeah. I heard I mean, about, I learned about Bessie before Ma, Ma Rainey. So I learned about Bessie Smith because when I first moved to New York City, 
Virgin Records was still this huge thing in the middle of Times Square. <laughs> and they had everything. And I loved it. I was like, finally, things that I'm not, like I'm 20 and I'm, I'm slowly realizing that the history I was taught was wrong, that a lot of things were, so I'm buying books off the street and I'm, so I'm looking in like other, and for whatever reason, a Bessie Smith CD. Remember CDs? Yeah, that's how old I am. CDs and records. Listen, it wasn't a tape, which it could also have been (laughs) Um, because I'm that old. Okay. Um, And I just bought it randomly. And I remember like going home and listening to it and being like, she's amazing. But I I hadn't heard of her. Right. Because I didn't know anything. Right. Um, Well, don't. I mean, I learned more about like I had heard you like as a black person, you hear about these black famous black people because you know depending on where you go to school you hear these names but sometimes you don't know the context in which they existed so like in college I really got into um Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn who I'd heard of but I didn't really know and then I was like these women are amazing like yeah like why aren't they but they're it's so it's interesting when you're a young person you can go back which now you want to feel old sometimes um i was listening to something and some kid didn't realize that queen latifah was a rapper first oh god oh god because she's an actress i was like yeah this queen latifah was a queen latifah rapper before like but then you realize because that's old to that's history to them that's true but and that's not even that old so like yeah if you go back and you learn from about people because like you know sarah vaughn and ella fitzgerald more of the 40s and the 50s and then i discovered nat king cole but i knew of nat king cole from like old movies um but then you're just like i'm just like oh my god and then the nicholas brothers and so like yes who are amazing like p.s while you're like listening watching where you're youtubing mamie smith youtube the nicholas brothers they're they're incredible and ridiculous yeah. like so when people it, are like the talent is gone i'm like there was always talent there it's about opportunities always. and like yes. exposure right like there's and, people and, now who are amazing that we don't yes. know that much about who don't have the exposure so many probably most there's yeah say? because also it's it's and I think, I mean, I think it's better now because of uh, social media and the internet, because now you can put your own stuff out there. That's true. You know, that is so. very true. But Mamie Smith, thank you so much. I've heard the you name, know. but I didn't understand the context. And so, yeah, we learn. Yeah, we learn. Right. That's what we're here for. Well, so bye. now this week, my notorious woman, you've heard of her, but same thing. Um, you probably don't know that much about her. My notorious woman this week is Caroline Astor. Okay. Okay. I know, you know her Caroline? because of the Gilded Age. We're oh, best yes. Friends. Yes. So. I've Caroline only seen three Ast- episodes. Anyways, go on. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it gets a little bit better. I'm hoping season two is much better. Yeah. Um, Anyways. Yeah. Carrie Coons is like, I'm like, why are they not giving her more? It's fucking Carrie Coons. She's amazing. But anyway. Yeah. Um, so Caroline Astor was born Caroline Webster Schmer 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 Lord, I swear. Okay. I feel like Caroline Astor. We're like Austrians. You it you'll see. Caroline Astor was born Caroline Webster. Shermerhorn. Shermerhorn. Oh, Shermerhorn. Like the stop 
on the C train in Brooklyn. Ah, Hoyt it's probably yeah, Shermerhorn on <laughs> September twenty second, eighteen thirty. I would like you to say Shermerhorn all day. Shermerhorn. <laughs> Shermer. Shermer. Shermerhorn in the morning. Whenever I'm um, <laughs> Yes. In 1830, into a wealthy family who were part of New York's Dutch aristocracy. Uh, okay. And descendants of the city's original settlers. Mm. Hence the stop. Okay. You know, it's so funny. Like New York, when you live there, you see all these names, uh, you know. And then you hear history and you're like, oh, that's who that was named for. I was like, Hoyt Shimmerhorn. Yeah. Yeah. Off the sea. So exactly. Um, And so so she was from a she was born into the Shimmerhorn family. Like I said, they were the original settlers. So this is like old money. Okay, That is the whitest of white. Yes. Super white. Her father, Abraham, born 1783. And the extended family were in shipping, <clears throat> i.e. slavery, uh, <clears throat> allegedly. Uh, whenever they say shipping, I'm like, mm, that sounds like slavery. Here's what I will say in their not really defense <laughs> is they probably had no choice. It was no part I, of the process. It's part of the process. What could you do but then to ship humans and sell them? I mean, along with. Along with wood yep. and other mm-hmm. goods, yeah, right? You know. But whenever people say shipping, I'm always like, hmm, nope. that's a nice word. Which, remember that her family's wealth comes from shipping and a lot okay. of other things. You know, you make money in one way and then you extend to like real yeah, estate yeah. and all this other stuff. But shipping. So remember that, right? Shipping. Which we say, uh, uh, I, which probably include human cargoes, uh, slaves. Huh? Um, so now at the time of her birth... In 1830, Abraham was worth half a million dollars, equivalent to 12.72 million in 2021 money. Dang. Now, so that's her father's side. Her mother's side, her mother was Helen Van Cortland. Um, Cortland. She was born in Cortland. Cortland. She was born in, yep. She was born in 1792, her mother. Caroline was the, I've seen some sources say, and a lot of my sources come from Wikipedia, also the Gilded Age, also Mm. the podcast, uh, The Gilded Gentleman, which I highly, highly recommend that podcast. I love it. Um, So some sources say she's the ninth child. Some say she's the eighth child, but it could be that one child died in childbirth. So, but she's the last child of her parents. Um, at the time of her birth, her family lived at one Greenwich street near Bowling Green. Ah, yes, yes. Yep. But the population growth and increasing urbanization of lower Manhattan in the 1830s, uh, led her family to move North to 36 bond street near the (laughs) ultra fashionable Lafayette place. Lafayette, which which had been developed by her future husband's paternal grandfather, fur trader John Jacob Astor. Ah, yes. Ah, I just have to say it's so funny because Bond Street and like, where was she before? Like a little further south. Uh huh. That's like two train stops away. Yeah, Yeah. that's like. But at that time, this is horse and buggy, so. It's a little bit further. I'm like, where yeah. did she? Washington Heights? No, Bond Street. No. It's yeah. still, okay. Yeah. And these people it. didn't walk anywhere. They were, No, God know. forbid. Yeah. Now, young Caroline was educated at a school run by Mrs. Bensey, or Bensey, a French emigre. 
Um, there she learned how to speak French fluently, as well as other domestic and creative skills that a wife should learn. Now, keep in mind, like Marie Antoinette, like they taught young women how to speak French and the piano forte, all of that uh-huh. stuff we learned from uh, Jane Austen. But they didn't have, they didn't really teach them about math and science. Oh, no. God, no. No. So no, they didn't have that kind of, exactly. So it's so interesting to me when I found that that fact out, like highborn women were educated, but it's not what we would consider like a young woman from a, a well-off family today to be, because she right. would have access to all kinds of things. I mean, Whereas, it's interesting. You know, it's less, it's, it's less information you would get from a public school, right? Yeah. 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 Like you yeah. have to have a certain amount of math, certain amount of science, certain amount yeah. of English, right? Whereas... I feel like they just taught him enough how to catch a husband. Catch a husband, run a household, yeah. and be able to have conversation, be an interesting enough conversationalist. Yeah. And, you know, write your letters. Run, right, right. Write letters, but also run a house by being able to give, which is an art form. I won't put that down, but to give, you're not actually doing the cooking. You're setting no. the menu, you know. Listen, so it's I like would, cultural, social education. I would really like to hone my skills in telling other people what to do for me. Yes. I was wondering <laughs> how I could go about that. I just, I want to be better. I want to better myself. Yes. By telling people how to do for me yes. and take care of me in the way of my liking. In, my, in the way of my liking. It reminds yeah. me of like Downton Abbey. Yeah. And like a lot of Caroline comes from the family where these people were American, but they still aspire to be like the European, particularly British and French um, aristocracy. So yeah. they taught young girls how to ride horseback or like everything you learn from Bridgerton. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where most or Jane of our education now lies. Yes. <laughs> or Jane Austen novel. So yeah, but it's just so interesting. Well, That's a good point, Miriam. Like basically a basic public school education is far superior than yeah. how she'd be taught. Like yeah. little bit of algebra don't hurt nobody, you know. Yeah, chemistry. No, they're not teaching a girl. Her lady brain nope. can't handle that, obviously. No. Miriam, come on. Come Stop. on. It's now, it's a girl in there. <laughs> Just boobies. Um, now, because she was so well born, her dowry was a vast one. Not only was her dowry was a vast one, but she also, after her marriage, maintained her own wealth. Because oh. again, this is old, deep pockets, her money and stuff. So, but because of that, she could be choosy when it came to picking a husband, but not too choosy. She can't marry for love. Well, God, no. I mean, that's not a thing, is it? No. No. <laughs> Uh, but she could choose, uh, she could wait, she could wait. So she didn't get married to, uh, around 21. So, you know, I know. Ancient. So, but she could (laughs) afford to be choosy because she was a great catch from a, you know, both her parents on her parents on both sides were from like deep, deep, like high born people. Right. Um, so on September 23rd at 1850, on, on 1853, September 23rd, she married William Backhouse Astor Jr. He was born in 1829. I'm sorry. Backhouse? Was Backhouse, girl. Backhouse. No one made fun of him? Not like one kid on the playground? Okay. I was going to get to I mean, that, but I'll get to it here. So okay. <laughs> she is very snooty. 
She was raised what? to be very snooty. Huh? What? Right? Now, the Astors, although they had a lot, a lot of money, they didn't have the pedigree that uh, she hmm. had, right? Huh. Her huh. on both huh. sides. Right. So later after they got married, she told her husband to change his middle name Backhouse because it sounded like a privy. I'm which, just saying it does. I mean, she's not wrong. She's not she wrong. Might be, she might also be a dick, but she's not an incorrect yeah. dick. You know she's not. Saying? Yes. So now her husband, uh, and they married at Trinity Church, you know, again. Huh. That's where Angelica know. and Eliza are buried. Sorry. I love Hamilton so much. <laughs> and I know that it's like years outdated. but it's No, that's great, though. You said that because that shows you how like big of a deal yeah. the pairing was, like yeah. how exclusive these people are. So she um, now her husband, William, was the second son, not the first, the second son that had become important later uh... of William Backhouse Astor Sr. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm Margaret, sorry, I'm giggling like I'm 12 and I know <laughs> now William is the it's second. Keep calling him back house. Go on. <laughs> so now. So her husband was the second son of William. OK, right. William is the son of Jacob, J- uh, John Jacob Astor. So the Astor. Jingleheimer Smith. Go on. Yes. Right. Yes. And his and William's uh, maternal grandparents were uh, uh, Senator John Armstrong Jr. and uh, Alita, the daughter of Robert Livingston of the Livingston family. So he's not too shabby either, but Caroline again, and I feel like she probably came into the marriage knowing this and reminding him of this. And I'm sure his family also reminded him that she's a great catch because Mm -hmm. of this pedigree. Okay. Don't fuck this up, boy. Okay. Yeah. Now, her husband's family, the Astors, made their fortune initially through the fur trade uh, and then later investing in New York real estate. And again, despite the wealth of the family, she had a superior uh, pedigree. Um, She Caroline was considered part of the old Knickerbocker set. Knickerbocker, Knickerbocker Hotel. There's a hotel. are, Are the original 1600 Dutch settlers of Manhattan. Okay. Family. So again, they're like the blue bloods. This is what yeah. this is American blue bloods. Yeah. So by all accounts, her husband, William, um, didn't consider the love match. This a love match either. And eventually he became a philandering fool. But we're going to get to that. We're going to get <laughs> we're going to get to that. OK, Come so he's shocked. Go on. I know. Yeah. But they first get married. It's a young couple. They have a lot of money. They're going to have a great life. I just watched mm. um, um Come uh, uh, trading places. And he's like, we're going to have a great life, Penelope. Great <laughs> life. So I love yeah, that absolutely. movie. Um, so they eventually had five children. Emily, born in 1853. Helen, born 1855. Charlotte, born 1858. Um, and John, who was born in 1864. So that's their only boy. Uh, side note, he died in the Titanic. Oh, God. Yeah. So um, now once John was born, that's the heir. William was like, well, let me see what else is out here. And then I can get into here. (laughs) I'm rich. I'm a white man. And I am aims to do what I'm going to do. Okay. 
Okay. Um, so, but it's interesting because a white again, man's going to do what a white man's going to do. Okay. It's good to be a white man yeah. with lots and lots of money mm-hmm. in 1864. I'm just saying. Um, Caroline was, like I said, a very, very big snob. She thought she was better than most people as she was raised to be to be to be fair she was raised since birth to believe this so the fact that William started philandering and embarrassing her was one thing but then he seemed to prefer he seemed to be running around town with lower born women i.e. actresses sex workers women just not on her level so if he puts it in someone else best be rich is that the plan or at least from a good family right (laughs) <laughs> so I'm it's kind of like I mean how dare you cheat on me with a lower class woman I mean I can understand her point it's kind of like when you your guy cheats on you and you see him and the girl is uglier than you you're like really oh, player really yeah. no that's... that is true and it's like what what like you like, like ugly it... girls yeah you like like if you yeah, see her and she's true. gorgeous you're like damn it she's beautiful yeah God. that's fine damn it <laughs> no William's like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So this continued to make her throughout the rest of her life, you know, in this, it it humiliated her, but also made her very insecure, which I get. She's, and also that's the thing about these old families. They're not the best looking people it tends to be because there's a lot of like incest going on. They keep having to marry a cousin, you know, because only so many crazy rich people in the world and- you know, yeah, we they don't cannot look be like, marrying the actress, obviously. They don't look like Lady Mary and Libby from Downton Abbey. They don't no. like, yeah, they tend not to look like that. So yeah, um, that's the reality. Yeah, that's the reality. So she wasn't like, you definitely would not call her a great beauty. She wasn't an unattractive woman. But when you see the picture, you're like, ah, yeah, that's why. So when you said she was the catch of the town, you were not talking about anything aesthetic. No. Yeah. Well, I think she was probably considered a, a an attractive young lady of that sect. So it's all relative, right? Ah, uh, yes. Within the sect of, you know. <laughs> That's why he was like, I'll go girls. to the actress. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. And also these women, you know, I hate to say it, but both of them are in a trap because these women were not raised to know about their bodies or sex and men That's were not true. raised to treat. Men were raised, socialized to be like, this is my wife. And then these are the other kinds of women who may be more exciting sexually. Yep. You know, and, so. and, and it was not a problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. She can't. Don't get me wrong. He's probably a snob too, but she, that's the one thing that she has over him though, that she's like from the Knickerbocker sect of New York's elite, you know? Ho, ho, ho. I mean, that and sounded so. French just now, but I mean, I was, yeah. that's my snooty sound. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Um, Now, um, so we've heard of the term socialite and society, et cetera. Now, Caroline Astor did not invent society and socialite and all that other stuff that existed hundreds of years before and all of this, the British and the Dutch and everybody brought. Yeah. Thousands of years. Exactly. Right. But she became the main figure in New York City social circles, circle, excuse me, that really codified what society, quote unquote, high society meant in America, ah. um, which was codified in the Gilded Age. So ah. this is also a time where Americans were able to create like high society of American sort of aristocracy, 
which was modeled on European aristocracy, but it it became um, particularly American. I mean, we all uh, love a rich time. snob, right? Like we all, we all love, love it. it. We yes. all like look to be that. So yes. America's like, those- we can do this too. We can we do this, this too. And it's and it's like the when we think of like I think of like the the preppiness of the eighties and like these those would be the children, they would be part of these families that were established, especially during this gilded age time. Right? So oh, then yeah. yeah, so they're like or at least a template on how you become high society. Yeah. This is, was established during this time. So yes. interesting. Yeah. So, so now just a little side note about the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age in America was an American era that roughly ran from 1877 to 1900. Edith Wharton wrote about this. Yep. Age of Innocence. It's all about the Gilded Age and because she was part of this high society group. Um, and so it ran between 1877 to 1900 between the uh, Reconstruction era after the Civil War through the Progressive era where we start to have like social change. Yes. Um, it was a time of rapid economic growth, especially in the northern and western U.S., where American wages grew much higher than those in Europe, especially for skilled workers. And industrialization demanded an ever increasing unskilled labor force. So it's like when you think of like American expansionism and da, 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 yeah. it really sort of happened or modernization, I should say, happened during this time. So um, also they lost their slaves. So uh, yeah, yeah, they're going to need a new source of labor, need, which is um, and industrialization is kicking up. Uh, so to I kill the like wealth. This is, right. This is when like in Europe, I, I tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like. This is like they'd say, like, come to America for opportunity, the land of freedom and joy. Really, they needed your body to bang on a rock to make the trains go. And that that's whole like land. Like, I think we still believe it. Oh, yeah. The land of opportunity. No, that was a flyer in Ireland. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) Like literally. Yes. To get you to come over here because they don't have their slaves anymore. (laughs) No. And then they need to pay you five cents a year. Exactly. And industrial and industrialization is like on like steroids also. Yeah. So all this stuff, the the railroads, all of that stuff is being built. So it's like, come here, land of opportunity, like you said. Um, and it was called the Gilded Age because even though again, it's 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 relative. In Europe, the American what the Americans were offering was a huge pay increase to what uh, you know, poor people could get in Europe, right? Right. It still didn't provide ultimately the kind of money you needed to have like a middle class kind of thing, right? Well, there was because um, there was no net. You'd get there's no more. Net. But if you broke your arm or lost a foot, you just died of starvation. There was no net. Exactly. And that is why that ushers in all of that realization once the 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 glass the the rose coloredness uh is it's is revealed to be not so rose colored that's when that led that leads directly to the progressive age where uh unions yes um you know working conditions are improved that kind of thing but prior to that the immigrants were just starving and they were like they're coming through Ellis Island land of opportunity they see this flyer they come here 
And they're at least being fed. They're not hungry. They're not dying of starvation. Right. But they are living in tenements. In squalor. In In squalor. But they're living inside. Yeah. But yeah. But it's crowded. Um, And so initially this was a lot of the Irish population and then later on Eastern European uh, Jewish population and then the Italian population. And, you know, it's sort of of comes in waves. That's why they all eventually like intermarried. Like when I married an Italian, I was like, is anyone surprised? This is what we do. Please. And this is why now during this time, also socially with high society, they're trying to distinguish themselves from the people who came over on the Mayflower the people who were here before these immigrants are coming in. That feels right. Right? Yeah. So this is what you're starting to get. Like, people are like, this is where the go back to where you come from starts. Ah. Oh, oh Even nice. among oh, like, okay. if you saw, uh, what's that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and um, Martin Scorsese? It's about the the draft riots or the where oh, white New York people just attack uh, the whole black people they saw. Um, Not gangs of New York. Yeah, gangs of New York. Gangs That's of what New York. Yeah, yeah. And so, because it starts off with the rising, you don't really realize because they kind of hide it that the Irish, the poor Irish immigrants who are mostly immigrants, were upset that they were being drafted to fight the Civil War, and they thought they were being uh, drafted to protect black people so then they started attacking random black people on the street mm. i actually didn't i didn't know that yeah it's it's kind of hidden in the movie they don't really mm. tell you what it is but in that movie daniel day lewis's character plays uh he keeps saying um he's a native or he says something else i forget the name basically i was born here yeah. and i'm better than you other irish people that immigrated here mm-hmm which is so funny because Daniel Day-Lewis in real life is actually Irish, but fully know. Irish, very yes. proud, interesting. But that's where so even but so even amongst the people, the regular people who are working this this kind of like cultural clash is going on. But to the upper level, they're really frightened because they're like, oh, all these new people because the new yes. people are coming there because the people who may have the money need the labor. Because, again, they don't have free yes. slaves anymore. They don't have slaves anymore. Nope. Or the labor of the slaves in the South. People forget New York uh-huh. benefited a lot from slavery as well. The northern cities. Sure did. So, so, um, so Plan that's B. What, <laughs> plan B. So that's what's going on behind the scenes. So socially. Now... The backdrop of all of this, Caroline's life, she's living a whole other not- life than what most people are. The most of our families were. She's living a life of elegance and high society, balls and parties. Um, and But because of all this social anxiety, she's trying to figure out how to distinguish herself and her, her ilk, right? Do you now, ever wonder they would ha- if she spent more time trying to put money towards science or medicine i'm just i that comes the women of her status they start to do that in the progressive era so it does transition Uh, because right now it's a matter of like ostentatious wealth uh the income tax is not implemented yet i know it's actually against the law yeah so all the money they're making they're keeping yeah so they can build these insane huge mansions like it's insane uh, it's like 
insane wealth, right? But they yeah. can say, well, I'm not an aristocracy. I'm actually making this money. I'm a working person. But it's yeah. like, mm, like uh. I work so hard three hours a day telling yeah. people what to do and how to do it. It's so, it's like when I watched, uh, I used to watch uh, Beverly Hills Housewife, and I remember uh, Camille Grammer when she was on there. She was complaining about um, building or moving her house to her house in, in Hawaii or something. And she's like, I'm so exhausted. I need a vacation. Well, she is so like, relatable. I mean, yeah. like she's all like, of us. Just, it's just so exhausting. So um, <laughs> now before, prior to like, so Caroline in the beginning, she was just like a rich lady from a uh, rich family, blue blood family, right? Okay. But her husband started all his philandering. So she put all her focus on her her five children. Now, when her first daughter, Emily, um, in 1872, was her uh, debutante year. Okay. So she came of age. And for these families, this is, kind of, this is very important. We've all watched, you know, um, uh, Jane Austen. So these debutante, um, the debutante year is very important for these kinds of families. Um, so being, and again, she's the wife of the second son of the famous uh, Astor, okay. of a famous okay. Astor son. She's not the first wife. So she wanted to do something that would distinguish her daughter and her family and make sure that it was successful. So enter Ward McAllister. He was born in 1827. He's a lawyer from a formerly, a formerly wealthy judicial Southern family from Savannah, Georgia. <clears throat> Slaves. Um, <laughs> he was just as much of a snob as her, but he, his family's fortune had taken a turn because they lost most of their wealth, which were their slaves. Oh, no. Labor. I'm so sorry. I know. Uh, <laughs> my tiny violin. It's so thing. tiny. Tiny but violin. We'll play it for you if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> so Ward, oh. now he probably sounded like this. I say, I say, I say. <laughs> okay, that's that's a little foghorn leghorn. I say, I say, I say, boy, <laughs> listen to me what I'm talking to you. Um, right. No, so he probably, he was raised a gentleman, you know, mm. on a plantation, which oh. is is a which is a, a work camp. Plantation is a fucking work camp. It's a work camp. Don't have your it's weddings on camp. it. It was a no. work camp. It's a work yeah. camp with a Are you having a, a wedding house. at Auschwitz? No. So, no. same thing. Don't do okay. it. Don't okay, do it. It's a work camp. Throwing it out there. Just, yeah. yeah. So he so his family's uh, wealth has gone. I mean, he was trained as a lawyer, so he's probably working as that. But he also understood uh, uh, manners and how to comport yourself because that's how he was did, raised. Did you just say that he has to work for a living? Oh, I know. God. Right. That's so terrible. Mm -hmm. I am so he, sorry. And when they say he didn't have the kind of money he because I'm going to tell you a quote he says later. So he wasn't again, my tiny violin. So, so it's getting smaller. Go on. Yeah. It's getting smaller. So <laughs> he, so she turns to him. Now they were related through marriage uh, on the Astor side. So his okay. his first cousin married into the Astor side. So they were married. They were um, related through marriage. He helped guide her through the debutante year for Emily. Okay. Um, and it went really well. Um, you know, just he understood like you don't do this, you don't do that. how to make the best impression for Emily to make the best impression as well as the family. Got it. Um, okay. but those two became thickest thieves because they both were uber snobs. Um, isn't and, everyone else worse than us? Yes, they yes. are. <laughs> now he thinks of himself 
um, as, you know, high society without the money. But he wanted desperately to be part of high society in New York. Okay. And he adored money. And Caroline had a lot of damn money. Yeah. So yep. he thought of her. They became thick as thieves. She thought of him that he could help her. Um, they could be partners in crime, but she could also be a good vehicle for him to finally enter, be accepted in high society. So yeah. what they decided to do was to come up with their to make high society. So, OK, you ready? Let's do this. OK. So for us lay people or us regular people. In 1872, that same year that Emily came out after that was successful, they sat down, Ward and uh, Caroline and, and Ward McAllister sat down and came up with the rules for the Gilded Age. Wow. It was a list. Did they call really, it the rules for the Gilded Age? They called it the Society of Patriarchs. So they considered, so they, they made a list of people. I don't know what people. to say about that. They made a list of people who they considered legitimate part of fashionable society, and they called it the Society of Patriarchs. Okay. 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 Now, okay. Caroline believed. Okay, so this is so they they did this. So the Society of Patriarchs. So they wanted to because this is to distinguish not only from that social stuff that's going on with all the immigrants, but to distinguish themselves from like new money. Oh God, new money, right? right? Crass people. Ugh. So they they wanted to keep the riffraff out, basically, yeah. who just because Don't you had a lot of money you. didn't mean you were part of society. Obviously not. Ward McAllister once said that, quote, one million dollars was respectable poverty. One million dollars in 1872, which I didn't have time to look up, but uh, it's like ninety five million dollars or some shit. Like That's, if I need yeah. a minute. I would like to have respectable poverty. That's what I would like. <laughs> As my wish upon a star is for respectable poverty, Ward McAllister. Maybe one day I will be yes. respectably impoverished. Now, in addition to this, this, this notion about money, Caroline herself believed that it took four generations of men behind you to make a gentleman. Oh, what that, but it's 18, four, what? Okay. That's impossible. Unless you're Caroline, unless you're Caroline. Aster. Aster, uh, Shermer Horn. So. Shermer Horn. Unless now, you're a stop on the C train, you are not going to get there. Now, this is what she thought, but her own husband and his brother did not live up to this standard because her husband Again, the grandfather is the one that made the money. So technically, That's his father would be the first, and then her right. husband would be the second, right? The second uh -huh. generation. That's of, only of the gentlemen. second generation. Yes. So um, now, also because John Jacob Astor was uh, a little bit a side note about him, he was a poor German immigrant who came into, who got into the fur trading. Um, um, uh, business had a lot of success and then expanded it to real estate. Okay. And that is the reason why the Astors are so, uh, her husband's family is so wealthy, but he did that all. Like he did that himself. So uh, yeah. yeah. I and mean, he did it in fur and not <clears throat> shipping. So I'm just saying, yeah, no, I'm just saying I, Caroline, I might, I'm, I might like him better, honestly. I'm just saying. Yeah. And he, by all accounts, he was like, I'm rich, bitches. So he was, he would, the grandfather, John Jacob Astor, was known to like, 
be kind of crass. And he would wipe his hands on the garments of a lady sitting next to him at dinner, not on his napkin or on the tablecloth. Oh, my God. What an asshole. Grandpa's ass. He don't give a a fuck. What a dick. He's like, I got money, bitches. I got (laughs) money. What you gonna do? (laughs) So... So they came up with these rules, right? Okay. Of what makes it, what constitutes a gentleman. So, so she th- she thought it took four generations of wealth. Um, so on this list, she decided that they were going to throw a ball and they were going to invite 25 of these gentlemen who passed this, these requirements. So her husband's uh, not invited. No, her husband and his brother are on it. Uh, they Weird. let that slide. Okay. Okay. And then those those 25 gentlemen would then invite five more gentlemen each and four ladies each. Why okay. only four ladies? Because, you know. Yeah, I do. Lady Go parts. On. So, yeah, um, which equaled about 375 people. Thank you for doing the math. I could not. Those so. 375 people became high society in New York City. Wow. Now, later in an interview, so there's a, a, a most people say f- about 400 because in an interview, Ward was, yeah, you know, talking because he loved this, this being considered mm. the, you know, the uh, gatekeeper of high society. He said that there were only about 400 people uh, now, 400 people that he thought were part of high society. And that was the number of people who could fit into Caroline Astor's New York City ballroom. Well, I know when I throw a ball. I have yes. to cap it as well. So yes. I understand that. Caroline and, and I are the same. Y- yeah. You you and her are the same. We are the but same. The, the thing is, is that this is, they just came up with this and it they worked. They pulled it out of their assholes. Yep. And it, it worked. it fucking worked. Everyone flocked around her and became, and she became the foremost authority in the aristocracy of New York in the late 19th century. Oh my God. Now- you could be considered part of society, but you can also, there's no guarantee you would be, you would stay a part of society. Oh, shit. So any public scandal, faux pas, or anything that would cause, or if you insulted her or she didn't like you personally, you could be ostracized. I mean, like, and you would be I ostracized would... by uh-huh. no, no party invitations for you or your children, uh, to any of the social, uh, the season social gatherings. Um, if she did like you, she had an annual ball that she would have in her ballroom. And if you got an invitation to that every year, that meant you were still in society. So if people were like, they were like waiting for their invitation, it hasn't arrived yet. No, seriously. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't like, I would hope that I wouldn't care because if I had billions of dollars, which is essentially how they had their money, right? That's like. Yeah. Never ending pot of money. Like, I would just do my thing. I would like open a theater. We would tour. But, I don't know. But see, that's the thing about like the idle rich is they're idle for a reason. There's nothing for them to do but go on vacation together with each other. That's and true. like you can't you can't hang out with the masses. No. I think, Lavetta, I think you hit the nail on the head. They're bored. Yeah. They have nothing else else to, to do think about yeah and most of their wow. lives are spent within uh like a i don't know like a 10 or 15 uh block radius with other wealthy families 
they couldn't really go out like that's into true. the world. Even when they went to Europe on vacation, they vacationed at the same place. They go to Connecticut. They they go there together. They and you know, have you seen White Lotus? Girl, you, you know I've seen uh, White Lotus. I'm a human you know, in this world. I've seen White Lotus. Come on. You know how Tanya says, oh, these are high-end gays. It's good to be with people who have money because then you don't worry about them wanting your money. Girl, okay, I don't want to spoil anything about White Lotus, but when she said that line, I was like, oh, she's fucked. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but that's that. what it is. Like, yeah. So, yeah, this meant a big, big deal. Like to be in the society because and then if you're new money you want to get in because that means you've arrived because women right. of this caliber women of this ilk they're not they don't have like career aspirations their success is in getting their children married and so right. you know into you know successful matches and keeping the family's reputation see going. i would just i would just fuck it up like i i would just i would i would like open a theater and, and well, you like know my why, poor children. <laughs> because we come from bad stock. We come from <laughs> exactly. we come from low board stock. The low end. I was like, you're describing like you describe the people. Uh, my my family, they were in the Lower East Side tenements. <laughs> yeah, and my family were the newly freed slaves. Right, like, exactly. So, so we were all very yeah. hungry. <laughs> yes, we're just worried about eating and having. Uh -huh. Uh, a warm house and having food yes. on the table. And then as a black person, like, not getting murdered by some random white person. Right. And as a Jewish person, it's like the diseases, many diseases. Yeah, just, that's what we're worried about. Yeah. So we had other stuff. So yeah. I wasn't really worried about her invitation to the ball. No. <laughs> so, oh my God. Not you got to finish the Gilded Age. I do. The Gilded you Age. know what? I'm probably going to do that tonight. I'm going to finish it because I'm super inspired. It's you know why it's so hard because you're like these are not high stakes. So how do you I, make I, this kind of stuff high stakes? Well, I don't remember the names of anybody, but the woman who wants to be a writer, she's like the only oh, one the I black care lady? about. Yeah. yeah. But I'm so worried yeah. about her. Now and keep I, in mind her family's well off. Have you gotten that part? Like she goes oh, back no. to Brooklyn. Her family is in Brooklyn. Her family's well off because they oh, have their own business. No and shit. Da, da, da. Yeah, when the uh the niece goes back, she assumes that she's poor, but when she arrives, they live in like this beautiful brownstone. Ah, and, like, that's they're awesome. like well off. Like <laughs> and but she's a black woman, so her entree into high society, that's not gonna happen. So no. her people because black people have their own social hierarchy. That's a whole yep. other thing. But she like she can be like, oh, I want to instead of having babies, I want to like write. I want to get myself published. Yeah. Like, you and know. like, I really want her to get published. But everything else feels like less, you know, and like, listen, Christine Baranski is my favorite person. I mean, Queen Christine Baranski. Like, like, come, come on. on. She's the best. But, but even her, like, like I'm watching it, I'm like, this is you got to give Christine and and my girl, um, uh, um, what's her name, Cynthia yeah. Nixon, and yes. like, you're like, you got these like brilliant actors, like you got to give them more to do. So anyway, we digress. Yeah. But I, okay. I'm I'm hoping that season two gets a little bit better because they get as the season goes on, it got a lot more interesting, but. Um, so yeah, so back to Caroline Astor. So it worked her and Ward McAllister, this whole kind of thing worked. Now she, again, 
this hope, the whole point of this was to kind of keep out the new money and the new okay. money during this time were the Vanderbilts. Oh <laughs> yeah. The Pasha Vanderbilts. Now today the Vanderbilt are blue bloods to us. They have foundations, philanthropic endeavors, and of course the university Vanderbilt university, old yes. money to us. Yeah. But in the Gilded Age, they were considered new money and they had uh. a lot of money. Um, the ma- the money came from railroads and then other things. Uh, but now remember I said that Caroline Astor's family, Shermer Horns were like mm. shipping. Yes. The Vanderbilts made their money in railroads and Caroline Astor detested railroad money. Why? It wasn't because the right kind of money. You couldn't port slaves on them. Was that a problem? I, I, I don't know. It's yeah. not, but you're just like, really, really girl. Okay. <laughs> now, Okay. Okay, girl. So enter Alva Vanderbilt, which is uh, one of the characters um, that's kind of loosely based on her in the Gilded Age. Uh, Alva Vanderbilt was the wife of um, horse breeder and railroad manager William Kiss Vanderbilt. So he's one of the part of the Vanderbilt. Um, So the two women went toe to toe a while because Caroline was not letting her in because she's new money. And but eventually she realized that the Vanderbilts were um, getting a lot of uh, growing social influence. Yeah. So she realized that to bring Alva in eventually would be to her benefit. And they kind of they dramatize this a bit in the yes. uh, in the Gilded Age, the, the latter part of the season that you haven't seen yet. Okay. Um, I see the beginning so, when she's like, no, absolutely not. Yes. I don't know why they're British in my head. They just are. Well, because they're kind of doing that mid-Atlantic kind of thing. I could I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. accent. Well, I but. don't. I say it is. What? Hey, hey. I don't. There's I no word say not. out of my mouth. I'm just making sounds. Yeah, um, I just, I, I just think of uh, of Dan Aykroyd, Penelope. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, exactly. Now, now, I'm almost finished here, but I've been referring to Caroline Astor um, as Mrs. Astor. That's what people thought of her as. That's what she's known in history as. But actually, that giving her that moniker was a faux pas. And it was a faux pas that she made when she started using it. What? Again, remember when I said that, again, these rich people problems. Remember yeah. when I was saying that she's, the, she's married to the second son of John Jacob Astor? Yes. That meant that, um, or the second son of John Jacob Astor's son. So that meant that she didn't have the right to use the phrase Mrs. Astor. That was designated for the wife uh, of the first son, what? not the second. What? You could do that? That was like social hierarchy. That's kind of how it works, right? I, so what was your last name supposed to be? She was referred to as like Mrs. William Astor. She couldn't be known as Mrs. Astor only. It's kind of like saying oh. she's the T-H-E-E Astor. Okay. The Mrs. Astor. Well, okay. Okay. Yes. Hmm. So. I have so in- much respect for these things. Can you tell? <laughs> I know. I know, girl. So when. So when she, again, she was married to William. So she was known as Mrs. William Astor. That's her proper title. Okay. And again, they have cards printed with their names on it. Obviously. So when you go and visit people, hers 
initially said Mrs. William Astor, but after um, her sister-in-law died, she had it changed to Mrs. Astor. Oh, damn, girl. Okay. Yes. Mm. So when Charlotte, her her uh, brother, her sister-in-law, her brother-in-law's wife, Charlotte died in 1887, Caroline started using Mrs. Astor again. Charlotte's son, William Waldorf Astor, was oh, like, yeah, no, 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 no. He was like, that should go to my wife because now that my father's died, I'm head of the household in a sense. So he kind of surpasses and. St- in, in family status, his his uncle in that sense, because he's basically it's kind of like the British royal family. Yeah. Like like Harry is the second son. So. Right. Yeah. He's the, so yeah. Kate outranks Megan because she's the wife of the first son. That kind of thing. Right. So I've, I feel so, almost bad that I understand it. But yeah, go on. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> William and I, I see his point, which is, again, that Charlotte's son. He's just like, no, no, no. My wife should get that title now. So Caroline's like, mm, okay, uh, but his wife, so his wife uh, was named Mary, but Mary was 18 years younger than Caroline. Okay. And she didn't have nearly the social standing. She's just a young wife. She didn't, she probably yeah. didn't really care about that kind of stuff. But her, her nephew was like, my wife should have that, that title, that moniker. Um, so again, his father died. Uh, so his, his mother dies in 1887. Caroline, his, his aunt starts using the Mrs. Monica, the Mrs. Astor moniker. Now his father dies in 1890. So William insisted that she stop using it. So his wife could use it. Caroline's like too bad, too sad. I'm not going to stop using it because that's what people <laughs> know me from. Yeah. So that feels right. This, ca- this caused a bit of a rift in the family. And so. William, like rich people do, he tore down his father's mansion, which was right next to Caroline's mansion. So basically the Damn. two brothers live next door to he tore down his father's mansion and built the Waldorf Hotel next to it. Shut up. Okay. Wow. He is here to play. I what? gotta enjoy. I gotta um, admire his pettiness. I love yes. it, actually. <laughs> I gotta love it. No, I really do appreciate him. <laughs> now, of the Waldorf Hotel, she referred to it apparently as the glorified tavern next door. Well, Ooh. if someone built a huge ass hotel right next to my house, I would probably try to mock it as well. <laughs> now, it also, but it was, it also pissed off his other neighbors because it started to overpower not only her mansion, but other rich people's mansions. Yeah, it's like on a the, rich yeah. people neighborhood situation. Yeah. She still didn't budge. So he he and his family eventually moved to uh, England. Uh, uh, William. William Waldorf Astor, he and his family moved to England and he eventually became a Viscount. So he got a title oh. there. Okay. Um, so, but to, in retribution, Caroline and her son Jack tore down their man- mansion and built the Astoria Hotel. Oh my God. And then they built two different mansions nearby. Shut up. So the Waldorf Astoria. Okay. Later, the two hotels combined became and combined and became the Waldorf Astoria. But that was the original site of it because it, the original Waldorf Astoria was torn down in 1928 to make oh. room for the Empire State Building. Oh, well, now I know exactly where they are. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. It's just, yeah, rich people. All Man, when money. you have too much money... That is too much money. 
Yeah. Man, they were like, fuck the poor. They really yep. were. I well, mean, I will say this, that yeah. the Waldorf, that hotel was the it was scandalous because it was the first time that like people in polite society didn't like they didn't like mix with the regular people in public. They only did it in private homes like ballrooms. Oh. So it was actually kind of interesting because he started this hotel which was kind of scandalous on its own that you could just pay and stay in the neighborhood place. Yeah. And so, but it kind of like inadvertently like led to sort of like not middle-class, but like, like, I don't know, regular rich people being able to have access to this this kind of rarefied air. Like, yeah. Which is so interesting that, you know, rich people acting up. Um, so yeah, so it was later torn down, like I said, and the Empire State Building stands there now. Wow. Uh, and then the they moved the the new Waldorf is I forget where it's where it's at. Uh, but anyway, um, I don't so stay the, there very often. So <laughs> by the now by the time so she so they they built the Astoria and then they they started building mansions. So by the time her her new mansion that was facing Central Park at the corner of 65th Street. So 65th mm. Street and Central Park. Um, she, and she for a time she stayed with her husband, Jack, and his much, I'm sure, to the detriment of her of, her, of his wife. Um, her but son, her husband, mean. her son. Yeah, she stayed with her son and yeah. much to the detriment of her son's yeah. wife. Oh, yeah. Um, terrible. Yeah, because I bet she was a handful. But um her husband had died and she began to have some health problems because she's getting older. Okay. Um, by this time, too, she had she had endured many years. She went through a, a period of mourning. Her husband died and then her daughter, Helen, had died. Oof. So her husband died in 1892 and then Helen died in 1893. So she survived. Yeah. So she survived oh. one of her children. That's awesome. Um, because of that, she went through like a couple years of mourning. And so she uh, moved back from society. So she was away. So society in that time, society changed. Um, And so when she reemerged, the rules had kind of changed on her. She was kind of considered like old hat. Didn't like she didn't have she didn't have as much um, sway as she once had. But she was still considered, you know, you know, some of the, the younger women, you know, treated her like the queen bee she was, gave her her flowers. And some of them didn't like it just but things had changed on her. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's the matter. It's 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 fine. It's like now I mean, it's the she, same generational thing that happens to everyone, right? It's like yep. you're cool until you're not cool anymore because other people yeah. are younger. <laughs> They're younger and then because you don't have a a, a grasp on like a an iron fist on it, things change under yeah. you like Easily. you know, so I would say when she came back probably like 18 90 like the mid 1890s like 1895 1896 things had kind of changed on her now she died on october 30th 1908 at the age of 70 Ooh, okay um and following her death by all accounts it took socially it took three women to take her place in new york society mrs fish uh mrs uh ulrich Ulrichs and Mrs. Belmont. So it took three high society women to replace the kind of influence and hold that she had on high society as Mrs. Caroline Astor. Wow. So that is Caroline Astor. She took the bull by the reins, so to speak. Like she, and I got to say in like 
I don't have the most amount of sympathy for very, very rich people, but she didn't actually have any real freedom within her riches. Yeah. You know, it's not like she could go off and study the things she wanted to study. She, you know, she kind of had, it sounds like she kind of had to. They were in a gilded cage in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like Edith Wharton talks about that. That's what her, or a lot of her writings about. And she's basically like, they just could only like travel in the city about, you know, 10 to 14 blocks. Like, like that's why I, they would go yeah. to Europe a lot. Like they would go to Europe and, and, you know, or go to Connecticut because they couldn't really do anything. Like I would lose my fucking mind. Yeah. And then no one would sympathize with me because I would be very, very rich. Yeah. I mean, but, it's that it, I mean, some people fall into that trap nowadays. Like sometimes I'll see people who are and it doesn't mean you don't have depression or bad things don't happen in your life. But I'm like. It, like you see it with celebrities. I'm like, you have so much money. Why are you getting into arguments with people on Twitter? Yeah, right? Don't you like have a yacht to be on or something? I've been laying butt ass naked <laughs> on a white sandy beach. That you own. With sexy men's. Yes. That I own. That you also with own. With sexy men's giving me foot rubs <laughs> every fucking man. day. They just love you so no. much. Like you own them because... Very I would be on, yes, I would be on yeah. yachts. I would Obviously. be on like spa retreats. I would be on and mountains in Maui. I, I just, what, oh, yeah, I would girl. not be arguing with people on Twitter. No, no, I would not. I would be I just, I mean, like yeah. I have a tour of Southeast Asia I would like to go on. I'm busy. Yes, yes, yes. Because now when you're rich, you can actually travel around, but also because socially we are not restricted in that sense, right? right. I would yeah. imagine people, there are people who still feel restricted because they have to vacation here to, to be considered still ultra, you know, yeah. cool and, and, re and rich and like, you know, in the know. And it's like, no, I'd be going, like, I want to go to Southeast Asia so bad. Like, yeah, I go back to too. Japan, like. I want to go to Japan. I like, have no money, but no. And that's the thing is the thing is there, that still exists, I think. Mm -hmm. But we also know that it's a fallacy. Yes. And it's yes. known. So like yes. you can follow that, but you absolutely don't have to in a way that they kind of absolutely did have to. They'd yeah. lose everything. Yeah. You know, they would. That's probably why they kept building mansions like which they then had to like, you know, during the progressive era. And then like, you know, some of them went into disrepair, but like they had to cut them up. And, and like yeah. these huge brownstones in New York were like formerly parts of these huge mansions that took it, up whole like like boulevard blocks. It's amazing to look at now in New York. You're like, you know, the apartments, you know, and these yeah. apartments, by the way, are generally extremely expensive, like ridiculous. Like and they are one twentieth of what it was. Yep. yep. <laughs> and there's still Insane. $5 million. <laughs> exactly. Insane amounts of money. So, um, but I just thought she was a really interesting character, um, you know, because again, on this podcast is about, you know, you're notorious. She was notorious because she was a, a bully. I mean, she, she, was, was, a bully. A, she was a mean girl. She yeah. was a Gilded oh Age God. mean girl. Yep. Yes. What's the lead character of Mean Girls? What's her name? Not the lead. Oh, not Lindsay Lohan. Uh, Rachel McAdams one. plays. She uh, is Rachel McAdams. Yep. In Mean Girls. Yep. That's who she is. That's who she is. So 
that's Caroline Astor. But awesome. well, that wraps up another episode of Notorious Women. Guys, don't uh, uh, forget to follow us on Instagram and email us. And Miriam, do you want to tell them where? I super do. I'm looking it up because I don't want to mess it up. That's the truth. You can follow us on Instagram. Please follow us on Instagram, Notorious Women Podcast. And also our Gmail is NotoriousWMPod at gmail.com. Email us your thoughts, your ideas, your ladies, if you will. Um, yeah. yeah. If you have any questions. And also, don't forget to give us five stars. Five stars. It's five stars. You have a choice of one to five. You want to choose five. Five to five. No, you have a choice between five and five. I'm sorry. You're right. I I did not read the room correctly. You could choose five or you could choose five. Cool. Thank you. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.